I don't know whether any of you saw the recent documentary. Um, we're living in historical times. We are living in unique times. Uh, we are currently living under a queen who has been Queen of England, Scotland, Wales, all of that, the United Kingdom, for longer than any other ruler. That's a remarkable thing, isn't it? It's an amazing thing. And uh, there was a documentary on recently which was uh, looking at the life of the Queen for a year through 2015. Remarkable little insight into this uh, woman who's now over 90. I think she's over 90, and she is absolutely nonstop. It's quite incredible. One of the things that really jumped out to me uh, while we were watching that uh, documentary the other night was the way in which people considered it an incredible privilege uh, to come into her presence. And I suppose in lots of ways, the reading uh, that we were looking at uh, a little earlier talks about uh, the privilege of coming into Jesus' presence. But at the same time, I think there's lots lots of contrasts. The reading begins in verse 15 of Luke chapter 18, where it says that people were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. There's the background. Here's families, uh, parents, carers, maybe grandparents, wider family, bringing little ones to Jesus with the desire that by placing them in Jesus' hands, Jesus would impart some kind of blessing to them. Uh, what they saw in Jesus was something remarkable. He, they considered him to be unique. They believed him to be something which was worthy of a unique blessing for their children. Uh, and so that's what they were doing. Uh, and yet, the way that Luke uh, writes his account uh, is he brings some contrasts for us, which we're going to consider. The, the first little pause, though, uh, I just want us to begin by thinking about, is it's, it's probably not unusual, is it, uh, to find ourselves a little bit overawed at coming into the, the presence of somebody of astounding power and glory. Lenny Henry was interviewed, so those of us who were old enough to remember Lenny Henry first uh, hitting, the, hitting the, the comedy scene uh, would find it quite remarkable that that lad from Birmingham uh, is now uh, knighted before the Queen, and yet somebody who's full of confidence finds himself a little bit shaky when he has to go through that process of kneeling in front of the Queen and and the sword being placed, maybe that's why he was nervous, a sword coming to it. No. A sword being placed uh, on each of his shoulders. Uh, and yet, there is a contrast. Because the queen is that recognized glory and power. And yet, Jesus couldn't have been further away from that, really. He had no authority from a human perspective. He had no glory from a human perspective. He had no power from a human perspective. He didn't probably look particularly neat and tidy. And he probably smelt like every other peasant uh, surrounding him. That was Jesus. 
There was nothing uniquely special in human terms that would make somebody want to take their child and hope that there might be a blessing given to that little one. I guess it would have been quite uh, normal if, if the Caesar or if the governor of the area had come into the, into the town or into the village with, uh, with pageantry and pomp, then I guess there would be, oh, please will you bless him with the hope that maybe somehow you might remember this little one in 10, 15, 20 years, and they might receive something. And yet these parents saw in Jesus something very different, something which was not tangible in the things of, that you would measure in human terms. And yet something which was real in spiritual terms. What an amazing thing that we see uh, these parents doing. So I suppose in one sense, there's a contrast there between what we expect in terms of human blessing and the blessing that Jesus was giving and the blessing that the parents were hoping for. The disciples didn't think this was a good thing. After all, Jesus was a teacher, uh, and uh, people were flocking to him to be taught, uh, and they probably considered that was the main job that Jesus was about, and wasting time uh, with children was, was not really what Jesus was there for. Uh, and the disciples rebuked them. They wanted to get, get these kids out the way. Uh, I, love the, I love this church the fact that at times I have to just get a little bit louder and a little bit louder, and I've always got the microphone, but you know, I love the fact that there are little voices right the way through the service that we have. I love that. I think that's really a blessing and a privilege because it, it describes to us life, doesn't it? It describes to us the reality of life's experiences. Uh, and the fact that Jesus was concerned about the reality of life's experiences against the expectations of the disciples is really very interesting. But Luke goes a little bit further. We're not absolutely clear as we read this whether it's uh, immediately after the blessing that Jesus has given to the children. But what we do know is that Luke has decided to construct his narrative of the life of Jesus, where he brings into contrast little children with a rich ruler. That's interesting the way Luke describes this narrative. Immediately after talking about Jesus engaging with the little children, the next sequence in the description of Jesus is to bring into the frame this rich ruler. In lots of ways, there couldn't be anything different. Why does Luke do that? Whether it actually happened or whether he decided to describe it in this way, the reason that he does this we find in verse 16. The reason that he does this is because Jesus called the children to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these." Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. You see, this picture that Luke is describing is children are there, but actually this whole narrative 
It's all about the kingdom. It's about what does it mean to belong to the kingdom of God? What does it mean to belong to Jesus? What does it mean to, for Jesus, as he said on many occasions, for through me for you to belong to my Father? What does it mean? And Jesus says it's about being like a little child. Jesus doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is made up of little children. He says the kingdom of heaven is made up of people who might be little children and also people who are like little children. That's what the kingdom is made up of. I guess for many of us who feel as though we're maybe in most cases just a little bit more mature than children, uh, we might sort of hear that and think, what is Jesus talking about? He's creating a contrast. A contrast between children and a contrast between those children and this rich ruler. I I want to just pick out uh, a few ideas, four ideas of where there are contrasts. Firstly, we see a contrast of significance. A certain ruler asked him. There's no reason to not suggest that this is immediately after the previous event, as far as I can see. This rich ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The reason I think it probably happened here is because he asks him a question relating to eternal life. Imagine the moment. Jesus is surrounded by lots of people. And there's, there's little children who are being passed on to Jesus, and, and he's blessing them. And, and, you know, when there's lots of little ones about, it's kind of just, it's a little bit mad in a really great way. It gets all a bit chaotic Uh, And there's all sorts of things going on. And then this voice comes through the kind of hubbub. And everybody knows that he is the rich ruler. Everybody knows. What a contrast of significance. We've got little ones who are jumping up and down, climbing over each other. Probably not necessarily agreeing with their parents that it's the best thing that they are blessed by Jesus. There might have been a few tears here and there, uh, and all sorts of stuff going on. That is, in human terms, that is really insignificant. That's just ordinary life. And then this voice that everybody knows opens up and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I, I guess in that kind of power versus peasant kind of culture, I guess that probably some of those individuals quickly grabbed up their children and moved away because now the important people are speaking to Jesus. Now it's got all serious. Now it's this important social, political mover-shaker. And Jesus says at that moment... The kingdom of heaven is made up of not what we think is significant, but what God thinks is significant. 
He says the kingdom of heaven is made up of those who are like little children. I suppose the little children just kind of went to Jesus and, and, and there, was, there was no sense of bringing anything of importance. They just, they just turned up there because they were taken there or jumped up in the gang because all of their friends were there. And yet, here's this man who believes that he is really significant, asking a really important question that he expects for Jesus to answer him. Significance. One of the great challenges for us is that Jesus expects that the attitude that we have before him is not that we come saying how important I am, but that we come saying how important you are. That's about significance, isn't it? The little children didn't realize they came with nothing, but they really did come with nothing. And Jesus said, that's how you're to come to the kingdom of heaven. You know, one of the great challenges is that we think we bring lots. And one of the encouragements that Jesus is pushing us in the direction of realizing is when you come before God, when you enter, enter into that kingdom, you bring really nothing. But that isn't empty. That's not hopeless. We're going to understand why bringing nothing isn't hopeless. Because the next contrast that we see is a contrast of confidence Verse 21 says this, why do you call me good? Why, why does Jesus say that? Because the, teach, the rich ruler has said to him, good teacher. Now the word that he's used is actually a word which indicates precisely what the other uh, parents had recognized. There was something uniquely good about Jesus. That's what's behind that word. There was something of spiritual holiness in Jesus. And, and why do you call me good, Jesus replies. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. That's what Jesus says. We know what it means to be good, and you're calling me good, and we all know, really, Jesus says to the rich ruler, no one's really good, there's only God who is good. You know, very often I've had many conversations where people have said, when you read the Bible, Jesus never really says that he's God. And yet again and again and again, in the conversations that are held, Jesus gives prompts and, and uses language which makes it really, really clear that that's what he's claiming all along. In actual fact, we saw last week as we looked at Easter, that's precisely what got him killed, was because he was claiming to be God. But as this rich ruler comes to Jesus and Jesus says, you've called me good, only God is good. At that moment, 
The rich ruler has a choice. He says, oh yeah, absolutely, of course. There's only God who is good, so I'll not come to you. I'll turn away and I'll, I'll go. But implicit in him continuing the conversation, he's kind of saying, do you know what? There is something that makes me believe that that might really be true. There's something that makes me believe that you truly are the Son of God come into the world. I'm not going to walk away and say, yeah, of course, so there's no point coming to you. I am going to carry on the conversation. But look at the contrast of confidence. How does he respond to Jesus' question? All these I've kept since I was a boy. Where's our confidence as we come before God? Here's this rich ruler, and his confidence is this. When I understand and when I kind of logically deduce the standards that God wants, I have absolute confidence that I'm good enough. All those things that you've reeled off, oh, I've kept all of those. In a subtle way, the contrast is made that the rich man is actually thinking that he's bringing his confidence before God. And yet the parents and the children are saying, please bless this little one. I bring all sorts. I have great confidence. You know the two names of the little ones that we've just been joyfully praying with thanks for, Sophia and Grace. Sophia means wisdom. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? What a combination this afternoon, wisdom and grace. You see, the rich man is coming with what he thinks is his wisdom. And God is turning that on his head through Jesus, and he's saying, don't come with your own confidence, it's grace that you need. That's where your confidence needs to be. Confidence in the grace of what God brings, not what you bring. So we've got significance, we've got confidence. The third one is what a contrast of treasure. The contrast is quite simply this, and and unlike many of our tele-evangelists, who have the opportunity to say, bring me X number of dollars and phone in and buy this and get this and all of that kind of thing. Jesus had lots of opportunity to ask of that rich man all sorts of things. In fact, that rich man had the very treasure that Jesus could ask of him. And the children had nothing one of the important things in, in kind of Jewish culture and tradition was the idea that the riches were passed on to the firstborn. So those little ones, and it was then the firstborn's responsibility to care for all of the others. That's the kind of model in which it worked. You know, you pass it on to the one who would then look after all of the others. That seems initially to us really offensive, but when we understand the kind of life expectancies 
we would realize that the firstborn might just about be old enough to care for the rest of the family because the mother and father could quite often not live long enough to care for the younger ones. That's suggested as one of the models in which this uh, was developed. The children had nothing. They hadn't inherited a thing. They didn't get pocket money. They brought nothing. And yet this rich ruler brought the potential for all sorts. And that's precisely where Jesus saw his issue. He turned to him and he said, said, okay, you've kept all of those, what we think are the big kind of headlines. But I'm going to say to, say to you, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. I love the way Jesus engages with people. You know, he's not really in their face on many occasions, is he? He's not really aggressive unless there's the kind of religious leaders that he really does confront. But many people, he just, he just has the wisdom to just put his finger on just the issue. He just puts his finger on the issue for this rich ruler. The one thing that he had, which was his treasure, was his money in this world. Look at the contrast. Jesus has already said, or sorry, Jesus has already acknowledged that this is all about the kingdom of God. Later on, he goes on to say in verse 24, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. That, that, Oh, we won't talk about the Jerusalem gate and eye of the needle gate and all of that. But basically, Jesus is painting a picture which is kind of the impossible. What he's saying is quite simply this. When we believe that we secure our treasure on something outside of God, we are placing our treasure on something that is temporary. And that really is foolishness. And that's the issue which Jesus puts his finger on. He's actually saying to the rich man, it's actually not about whether you've got a whole load of money. The issue is whether you are trusting in that more than you are trusting in God. If the kingdom of heaven is all about something that is eternal, why would you trust in something that is temporary? Why would you trust in something that you can't really keep hold of, that doesn't really give you the kind of security that you desperately need? This man comes to Jesus and he says, I I want to know that I am part of the kingdom of heaven. That's eternal. That's going to go on forever. I want to be part of that kingdom. And Jesus says, that's fine. Get rid of the things that you think are important in this world that you're holding on to that are representation to say that I'm putting all my trust in this world and trust in the next world. And he says, I can't. 
He says, I can't trust in the next world. I can't trust in eternity more than the things that I've got now. What a tragedy. It actually says in that earlier verse 23, when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. The play that Luke makes is really smart. The sadness, it seems, is proportionate to the wealth. The more he can't get, let go of this wealth, the sadder he is. He is very sad because he's very wealthy. What a tragedy. You know, I just want to encourage you this afternoon. The kingdom of heaven, belonging and knowing that I am part of the kingdom of heaven, is the most significant, most important issue that we will ever consider in this life. Full stop. And the reason that I can be so confident in that is because it is actually about an eternal perspective rather than a temporary perspective. Now, I totally understand that there are all sorts of issues that we confront in life which are real, which are a challenge, which are desperately difficult, and we have to work through those. And the simple question is, are we working through those issues in the light of eternity, knowing that that is bigger than those issues, or are we living as though those issues are bigger than eternity? There's our challenge. And actually, that becomes a hope, doesn't it? Because the final contrast is one of blessing. Verse 23. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. He went away. He went away not blessed. Isn't that a tragedy? I don't know what happened with this rich man. I, I hope that he walked away from that, and that day was so significant in his life that somewhere down the line, he really reflected on it, and he, he turned to the, to the Jesus that he'd met because Jesus was that significant. I don't know whether that happened. I hope it did. But I'll tell you what, what a contrast. A whole load of little ones receive eternal blessing from, from Jesus and there's one person who has the ability to really think it through, and he walks away unblessed. I, I actually think that that kind of experience is, has repeated itself for the past 2,000 years and will repeat itself until Jesus returns again. There are many, many people who come so close to Jesus so close to engaging with Jesus, so close to trusting in Jesus, and then finally, after all of the conversation, after all of the discussion, they go away unblessed. What a tragedy that we can be that close. The conversation can point us in such helpful directions, and then we walk away. What a tragedy. The contrast that Jesus finally makes, not in this conversation, but the contrast that he ultimately makes, which, which Paul later describes that it's, it's foolishness for some, and it's a, a kind of 
mental stumbling block for others. The ultimate contrast that Jesus makes in his life is he says quite simply this, you are forgiven in my death and you live through my resurrection. That's the final contrast that he makes. So when we ask for Jesus' blessing, what are we actually asking for? When we become like a little child and we go to Jesus and ask that he might bless us, what are we actually asking for? We're actually saying, do you know what? What I need more than anything else is to be forgiven and saved. I need that more than I need to be fixed. (laughs) You know, we have a kind of fix-me mentality in our culture, all of the things that are going wrong. Please fix me. The great thing is, Jesus tells us, you don't need, you might, I will fix you along the way, but you really need rescuing, and I'll rescue you, and you'll rise with me. What a great contrast. That is the ultimate blessing that we can receive through Jesus.